Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So as I said, we're setting aside Romans 7. And we're doing that to focus on the Christmas season. And we'll pick back up after the, the, the new year. And we're, we're looking at our Lord's life. And last week we looked at the most significant moment in human history. Which is called the Incarnation. The moment in which uh, God came to earth. It's the moment when the Creator came to us and entered our world. And, and today, we're going to consider exactly how that took place. How did that happen? How did God choose to, to enter our world? And, and we'll find in Luke chapter 1, that was through the, the virgin birth. John showed us the, how the coming of Jesus Christ revealed God to us in three ways. Uh, in Him, in, in Jesus... The infinite God became personal, the unreachable God became present, and the incomprehensible God became plain. God is personal, God is present, and God is plain through, through Jesus Christ. And the proper response to that, we saw any place that this, 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 this event was mentioned, is worship. The angels worshipped at his announcement, the shepherds worshipped, having found him, the wise men worshipped upon seeing him, the wise prophet in the temple, realizing that he was, was the fulfillment of hope worshipped. And even Mary worshipped, realizing that she would bear him. And the miraculous way that that took place is something that should cause us to worship this morning. Christmas celebrates the birth of the Savior of the world, and the Savior came in a, in a supernatural way. And the, the story of Christmas is actually uh, a promise made, made long ago. The danger for us in hearing it year after year after year, even as you read those verses the, this morning, it, it's probably something that you could fill in the, the rest because you've heard it so many times, is for it to lose its, its, its awesomeness. Familiarity can breed contempt. And there are two guys in the Old Testament that got a little bit too familiar with the fire of the Lord that will remind us how dangerous that, that, that actually is. And so my prayer this morning is when we, as we look at the, the virgin birth, you would, you would pursue, you would, you would attempt to think about it in, a, in, a, in an intentional way. So it doesn't just kind of skip across the, the top of your heart. It will actually sink like a boulder that, that, into the water that, that in a way that it should. The promise actually begins in Genesis 3 and marches undaunted through the centuries all the way up to this manger in Bethlehem. The characters change, the, the promise comes in and out of view, but God is moving all history toward the advent of His Son and because of the, uh, the, the coming of His Son was necessary. It was necessary to save us, and that's the announcement. This one has come to save God's people from their, from their sins. One writer said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent an economist. But our greatest, our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. Richard Sibb said that through Jesus, God has made a way to make seemingly opposite attributes of justice and mercy kiss each other. We, 
by his grace are saved, and yet at the same time, his infinite justice has been fully met on, on the cross. The coming of Christ is the hinge upon which the Bible unfolds and all of human history turns. I mean, before the incarnation that came through the virgin birth, you have a promise yet to be fulfilled. And, and everything in the Old Testament is looking longingly toward that promise. After Christ's death and resurrection, you have news. It's good news. This is something that takes, has already taken place. It's not a promise. It's news now. In between his coming and his death and resurrection, recorded in the Gospels, you have this miraculous story about the birth and life of our Savior, God's Son. Theologians call it the enfleshing of the eternal Son of God, where Jesus put our, on our flesh and blood and became a human and yet without sin. And in that, God shouts to us that in spite of who we are, in spite of our sinfulness, He did not leave us alone. He came to us that we might be able to come to Him. And again, I said last week, I think that you've heard that story so many times that it doesn't stun us in the way that it, that it should. That's not God's fault. That's, that's the, the dullness of our own hearts. And the Lord can restore that. You have to pray and ask for it, which I have this morning for you. Here's the timeless, transcendent God who existed outside of time, not bound by time. The one who created time and matter entering the world in which he, he created. And at the moment of the incarnation, eternity bound itself in time and transcendence took upon itself matter. I mean, at that moment, God humbled himself in the most amazing way. He laid aside the continual worship that he'd known in heaven, and he was conceived in the womb of a daughter of Eve. I mean, that's mind-blowing. I mean, Christmas is about the event of the incarnation, when God came, but that event took place through the virgin birth, another miracle, and both are necessary for your salvation. It's a supernatural event that's outlined for us in Luke, verses 26 through 38 in chapter 1. And in that passage, Luke marks out the details of the most significant event in, in, Christ, uh, in Christmas. It's a, there's a threefold miracle here. Luke tells us that the virgin birth was a supernatural miracle, it was a biological miracle, and it was also a symbolic miracle, which is where we'll end with today. And without it, you would have no salvation. Or to put it in a, in a very plain way, if the virgin birth hadn't, take place, hadn't taken place, or you don't believe in the virgin birth, there is no salvation. It's that significant, which is why Satan often attacks truths like this and others. Look, if you would, at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, dispatched from God, to a city in Galilee. I mean, that in and of itself is, is amazing. God sends an angel to a specific city, to a city named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, or the one with God's grace. The Lord is with you. Now, verses 26 and 27 are details that, that set up for what this angel is about to say. And he, in, his, in his opening salvo is, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. 
This, when he describes this supernatural miracle that he's about to tell Mary is going to happen in her, he says this message comes with God's grace, and what's about to happen promises God's presence. Now, if, you, if you've uh, read that passage every year as a believer, again, it's familiar. But what you need to think about is this is the first time that Mary ever heard those words. I mean, you, you and I read this passage, and you can almost get beyond the reader. I mean, you've heard it so much that it just, it just populates in your mind. I bet I could go to a passage in Leviticus and open the Bible, and you'd have to look at your Bibles to, 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 to read that, right? You wouldn't know that passage. This is just familiar. This is not familiar to Mary at all. She's an average Jewish woman in a little town in Nazareth. And an angel comes to her and says these words for the first time. It's the introduction to the miracle that was about to happen. And at this point, Mary has never considered that she'll be part of a supernatural miracle. And, and so she needs an on-ramp, like, like you or I would need an on-ramp, which comes with this greeting. And the angel calls her favored one, which means the, the one with God's grace, the one whom God is showing grace. And that alone should cause her to shout with joy, to know that she's a, re a recipient of God's favoring grace. But the angel also says, the Lord is with you, assuring her of God's presence. He leads with, with God's grace. You're a recipient of God's grace because of what he's about to say. And what he's about to say is glorious, but then he follows with this promise of God being near because what he's about to say to her will be will be hard to hear. You know that's how God deals with, with, with you two? Any task, great or small, that we get to do for the Lord is, is fortune grace. We don't always think of it that way. But anything that we get to do is fortunate. And when those tasks are hard for us to do, um, He assures us that His presence will be with us. I mean, it's grace to serve the Lord. We used to serve sin, and we used to serve Satan. We used to do that with all of our hearts. And now we get to serve the Lord. That's great. But God doesn't send us out to do His work alone. He goes with us, not only through the, the literal presence of the Holy Spirit, which is in us, He's in us at all times, but, but, but he, he empowers us through the Spirit to do difficult things, mundane things, ordinary things, extraordinary things. The Lord is with us. And it's, it's grace. Mary's response, though, is fearful. And she's a little bewildered. Again, try to put yourself in her shoes. Look at me at verse 29. It says, but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. She was perplexed at the statement. What's the statement? You've received grace from the Lord, and the Lord will be with you. And she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, plainly, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. I mean, Luke tells us one thing about Mary's response. She's perplexed. And then he tells us the angel's response to, to her trying to get her mind around this. The angel says, Don't fear. This is a good thing. I mean, her response means she was deeply troubled. The word means to be confused. 
which is why she, she keeps pondering his, his words. It's, it's like uh, um, what you may do at times when, when, when you're trying to get your head around something. Nobody can see in your, in your, in your mind, you're thinking, but you have this look on your face like, how, how is that going to happen? I mean, this is the look on, on Mary's face, it, it, this confused look, which, which is why she keeps pondering his words. And, and that word means to, to think something carefully, think about it, try to reason it out, try to reckon it into your mind. It means to, to play his word. She's playing this salutation over and over in her mind, trying to figure out what, what he means. I'm sure you've done that, haven't you? You have something take place that you don't fully understand, and so you roll it around in your mind, trying to figure it out. That's what Mary's doing. And so he comforts her by saying, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You found grace from the Lord. It's like saying, this is a good thing. Mary, the answer you're looking for is not going to come from your reasoning. It's going to come by grace. It's that, that, that's where you're going to find the answer. The answer's not going to be rattling around in your head. The answer's going to be in what I told you. What I told you is, is you found grace from the Lord. What I'm saying to you, Mary, makes no sense outside of grace, which comes to you simply because God chose to give it to you. I mean, grace can only be received. Grace is not reasoned out. There is no reason that God would give you or me or anybody else grace other than He's gracious, other than He chooses to, to, to give it. I mean, Mary didn't find favor with God because she was sinless, like the Catholic Church says. She's not more special in and of herself than any other young girl in Israel or in Nazareth and in anywhere else. She received it because God gave it to her. And that's where she's going to find the answer to her pondering. That's it. No other reason at all. And that's the same reason he offers it to you. In whatever capacity you need it. You need it. Grace. Because he wants to give it to you. And if you try to work for it or find any reason that you should receive it, that grace will slip through your hands like sand. I mean, grace must be received. And once it is, then God often explains, explains more. Look if you would at verse 31. More explanation. He says, and behold. Notice, I mean, this is just part of the same story going on. The angel making the statement, Mary scrunching her nose, pondering, and him following back up, saying, no, this is a good thing. You found favor with, with God, and behold, here's the favor. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then he gives, him de gives details about what he's going to do. He'll be great. He'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. I mean, this is familiar stuff now. I mean, Mary knows that this is language about the Messiah. I mean, she paid attention in Hebrew school. And he explains, the angel explains what he means by this favor with God. He makes three declarations. He says, you will receive in your womb and bear a son, in verse 31. You will give him the name Jesus, into verse 31. And here's what he will do. He will rule and reign forever. Messianic prophecy. Fulfillment. Now, the Bible records some amazing births in its pages. 
but nothing like this. I mean, there is no birth in all of human history, including the pages of Scripture, like, like this birth that the angel just told Mary she's going to have, which is what it means by this amazing grace. There was the birth of Isaac to Abraham. That was an amazing birth. Sarah was, was, was barren for over, over 100 years. She was over 100 years old as a baby. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Pretty amazing to live over 100 years old today. There was Manoah's wife in Judges 13 who conceived Samson from a barren womb. And Samson was the one who killed a thousand men and slayed a lion with his bare hands. Would you like to have him as, as your son? Well, maybe some parts, but maybe not others. There was the birth of Samuel the prophet. That was an amazing birth. Came from, from Hannah. It says, whom the Lord had closed her womb. And so God, for whatever reason, his reasons, shut up her womb for a period of time. She cries out to the Lord for that, and then the Lord brings about the prophet from her. You remember, she's so broken over being childless in this period of time, this problem that she's taking before, before the Lord. She's so broken over that that Eli thought that she was drunk because when she prayed, she was so torn up that, that her lips moved, but no words came out. Have you ever been that grieved? Where, where, where you're, you're so grieved in heart that, 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 that your mouth is moving, but you can't even express the words of the, uh, of the pain. And I would just remind you, she's praying about a problem, a real problem that she has. As I was reminded this past week, the problem that she has, God was already working on a solution. It just wasn't there yet. Just like with your problems. Any problem you have, God is already working on a, a solution. And even Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, the mother of John the Baptist, that was a, a, when she was granted a child, that was a super, supernatural birth. Granted by the supernatural power of God. Elizabeth was barren, and Jesus said, Among those born of woman, no man was greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that includes Abraham, that includes David. That's a pretty high title. And yet this angel says, All of those miraculous births will pale in the one that, that Mary will have. The one that you'll have, Mary. I mean, God, think of this too. God has not given any revelation to Israel in over 400 years. Not, not new. No new revelation over 400 years. A 400-year silence. And it's been 2,000 years since the promise was given to Abraham. That's a long nine months. That's a long gestational period. And when the Messiah finally came, God made sure that everyone knew what was happening, including Mary. His birth was announced. It was explained by prophecy given beforehand. And so there was no one who, confused, who could confuse who the true father of this son was. The Bible tells us that Jesus was to be born of a virgin named Mary, betrothed to a man of the house of David, and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all the Gospels confirm this. This is not just something in Luke. It's in Matthew and Mark as well. The New Testament begins with the genealogy to show that Christ's birthright was to the promise of Abraham and, and David. I mean, long before there was Ancestry.com, there was Matthew chapter 1. I want you to turn back there. Look at Matthew chapter 1. I mean, what is this here for? 
page filler? Well, if it is, it's kind of boring. I mean, nobody turns to the genealogies just to read them to, to, be, to be encouraged, unless, unless you know why the genealogy is there, and then it's, there's, it's just like anything else in the Bible. It's a fallacy thinking it was boring. It's not at all. Jesus is the true blessing of Abraham, the true Davidic king, and the true return from exile. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And then drop down to verse 6. Marches from Abraham to Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Sin and grace recorded right here in Matthew. And look, if you would, in verse 17. Here's the exile. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Messiah, 14 generations. The true blessing of Abraham, the true Davidic king, the true return from exile is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But then he immediately follows the genealogy with how this takes place. Matthew goes right into how Jesus comes. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And he says the same thing that Luke does. He is born to a virgin. Jesus not only has the birthright by genealogy, he has the right birth by supernatural conception. And the Gospels declare an accurate account of how the Messiah was conceived. And it, it does this and repeats this because Satan always attacks truths that matter for salvation. I mean, Jesus is man and he is God. And both of those truths are wrapped up in the swaddling clothes of the virgin's birth. I mean, it's such a watershed topic that the Jews sought to kill Jesus for. Look at John 5.18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath... But, all, but he also said, or also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. I mean, they understood that being born of God being, meant, meant being equal with God. I mean, the virgin birth mean, means deity. And God wants us to understand the same so that you can have peace. And the prophet Isaiah foretold about his coming. Again, such familiar words. But think of this. 750 years earlier, a prophecy given to an unbelieving Ahaz, king of Judah. The birth of the Messiah would come in a supernatural miracle. And this is actually judgment to Ahaz. That the sign would be something that would come long after he was dead. But that judgment to Ahaz would be the blessing to the house of Judah and to the whole world. Then he said, listen now, house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. I mean, the sign was a declaration of judgment. 
Ahaz's unbelief. Ahaz had feigned humility and refused to give a sign. Oh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't choose what the sign would be, Lord. You give the sign. So the Lord chooses it for him. And he said a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And that would be God's sign. The Messiah had come, and that would come long after Ahaz's death. And while it was a future sign for Ahaz's wearying of the Lord's patience, it would be salvation for the future house of Judah, all the world. That's what this verse means. Notice Isaiah says that there are two things that this sign will include. A virginal conception, a virgin shall conceive, and also the incarnation. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So the virgin birth and the incarnation is right here in the prophecy. God, the second person of the Trinity, would enter time and space, would take along with his deity human flesh, and he would be conceived in the most miraculous kind of way. A virgin would be found with child miraculous because it's going to be brought about by the Holy Spirit. I mean, the miracle is not the birth per se. I mean, Jesus came by natural birth. There was a, a normal pregnancy in, in that sense. Those of you who are great with child or I have seen in the last few weeks, Mary felt the same way, a way that I have never felt, but you have. I'm ready, all right? Let this happen. That's not the supernatural part. That was the natural part. It's his conception that's the supernatural part. How he got there to begin with. I mean, some argue today that modern medicine can provide uh, virginal types of conception. I mean, outside uh, of the normal process. There are procedures such as in vitro fertilization that are used to help a woman get pregnant. But even those advanced procedures require the same components of a natural birth. They might be manipulated and other things, but they still require the same thing. I mean, there's no procedure that a scientist has ever devised that does not include a man part and a woman part. But the virginal conception of Jesus was very different. It's supernatural. It was natural in that the birth of Christ was normal in every way. Again, a full period of human gestation in the womb of Mary. That was to fulfill what the scriptures said. In all points, Jesus was made like his brethren, experiencing every aspect of human life, from birth to growth to, to death. He was a true man in every detail except for sin and its physical defects. The super part is that the Holy Spirit was supplied by special creation, the human components ordinarily supplied by, by mankind. Genesis says the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. It, it simply attributes here. The text doesn't say how it happened. It just simply attributes the, the conception to the overshadowing of the, of the Holy Spirit. Turn back to Luke 1, or forward to Luke 1. He says the overshadowing, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of God will take place. Well, the Bible means by this virgin birth. It was in that moment of human history the eternal second person of the Trinity took on sinless humanity, came into the world. At that moment, God voluntarily restricted use of certain parts of his deity. And in that distinct moment, he allowed himself to be conceived in the womb of a daughter of Eve. That act itself took place by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit 
who, as one theologian said, did his shy work. The Holy, the Holy Spirit doesn't like to draw attention to himself. It's one of the, the ways, I think from a practical standpoint, that you can see the error of, of some modern Christian movements. They're always drawing attention to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He always deflects attention away. And here's an example. He does his shy work in the, in the hidden shadow of Mary's womb, beyond all eyes, but this is a supernatural miracle. It was also a biological miracle. It was a miracle of biology. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be <laughs> since I'm, I'm a virgin? I mean, she asked the same question that you would have asked, that I would have asked. I mean, right? how, can this, how can this be? I mean, I am a girl from the countryside in Nazareth. I didn't go to the great universities. But I'm not dumb. Something hadn't happened yet. She's not questioning God's power or the angel's message this, this, or the grace that's come to her. She's asking about biology. Mary knew more than 2,000 years ago what some so-called scientists seem to not understand today that can't tell the difference between a man and a woman. I mean, Mary understood that for a normal pregnancy to happen... Things had to take place, and she, as an unmarried woman, there was a significant part that hadn't happened yet. In fact, all of what the angel said is, is, is a pretty hard thing to comprehend, don't you think? I mean, for Mary, not only have you just heard from an angel, but, but you've never known a man, and you're told that you'll conceive a baby. Make no mention to who the baby is. I mean, think of Joseph. I mean, for Joseph, not only is your betrothed wife carrying a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he's the Messiah foretold by the great prophet Isaiah from a verse that you've heard in the synagogue since you were a young child. I mean, you have sung the song of Elijah coming, and Elijah will come, and then the Messiah will come, and then the kingdom. Nazareth is a small village. Don't forget the resources. They don't have the resources to read and cross-reference at their fingertips. They don't have John MacArthur notes at the bottom of their Bible to explain to them what something means. I mean, both Mary and Joseph being Jews would have been looking for the Messiah. And now years after year of, of anticipation, he's going to be born to them. I mean, that's brain scrambling. And Mary didn't feel anything. I mean, contrary to some of the religious pictures that you see, I mean, she, she doesn't have some glow over her belly. She doesn't feel anything in there, in her stomach. I mean, Joseph didn't have anything other than the memory of the angel's words after the angel departed. I mean, could you imagine him thinking what he was thinking? Did that really happen? Was I dreaming? And so Mary asks the logical question. I mean, how will this be seeing I have not known a man? And the angel says it will be an organic miracle, an organic marvel. Matthew is very specific in his wording that we read. It says, The birth of Jesus was as follows. His mother Mary had been betrothed, and before they came together, she was found to be with child. So it's not a scandalous cover-up. This is a clear biological miracle. And a biological and a supernatural miracle, you must believe in order to be saved. Look at verse 35. The angel answered Mary's question and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He will be the source, supplying by special creation what is lacking. That's what it means. The Holy Spirit's not going to zap her with with some type of energy that she can feel. The Holy Spirit will, will do for you what is it, it normally would happen in another natural way. He will supply, he will be the source that will supply by special creation what was lacking. The power of the Most High will also overshadow you. That will result in conception. Therefore, Jesus will be without sin nature. I mean, if you just read the text, you don't have to do, I'm not picking on Catholics this morning, although they could be picked on the, the, the hierarchy, but, but you just read the text. You don't have to make Mary sinless or, you know, anything else. You just read what it says. The Holy Spirit provides what is necessary. And notice it says, therefore, or for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. It's cause and effect. Because the Holy Spirit will do this, then the child will be holy. And he's going to be called the Son of God. Cause and effect. And then the angel answers her question by pointing her to other biological miracles that God had accomplished. Look at verse 36. He says, and behold, this is all part of the same speech, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. I mean, she who was called barren is with child. That was Elizabeth. Now, if you ever doubt that God cares for your weakness or our weakness, think of these verses, or when you do, because you will, because I do. Does God really care? I'm weak right now. Read these verses. Come back to the Christmas story and understand that Mary has an angel standing before her. The angel declares grace and favor... And then she doesn't get it. He goes further and says, no, this is a good thing. Let me explain it to you. This is what's going to happen. He answers her questions. And then even beyond that, he says, I'm going to give you a real-life, tangible expression to help you grasp something so great. He doesn't just say, I said it, believe it. What's your problem? He gives her a real-life, tangible expression in Elizabeth to grasp something so great. And the greater the faith that we're called to exhibit, the greater the help that God provides. I mean, Mary knew Elizabeth was unable to have children any longer because of her age. They don't live together. So she hears about this and then goes and sees what she hears about. I mean, she will see in in her uh, an example of God's power that will strengthen her own faith. I mean... God does this often for paths that we have not walked. He points us to some other accomplishments that that he's done or some other ability, and he he reassures us. He's actually built it into creation. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is a resurrection passage, not a Christmas passage. Here's a question. Verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Have you ever thought about that? I mean... I see what's going in the ground. How's that going to come up out of the ground? And I've 
seen what that looks like whenever they dig that up. And I don't know that I want that kind of body for the rest of eternity. How's this going to happen? And they're scoffing here. They have unbelief, not general inquiry. So Paul says, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it. God grants it a body, just as he wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own, rooted, built within creation. There's examples of, of God's power in the resurrection. Paul is asked, how are the dead raised? Mary asks, how can a virginal baby be conceived? And Paul says, by God's power. You see that? Verse 38. But God gives it a body just as he wished. God gives it a body. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. And God gave us examples of how that's possible in other places in nature. I mean, seeds provide a common example of many resurrections every spring. They go into the ground, they die, they come up out of the ground as a plant. And that plant bears fruit. And you get to eat the fruit. It looks nothing like what goes in the ground. And Paul's point, if God can create seeds with that amazing ability, why is it surprising that he can do that with a human body? And if God can create Mary's body and Mary's womb to do that naturally, why is it hard to believe that the Holy Spirit could overshadow her and grant her a supernatural birth? Well, it shouldn't be. And the angel says the same thing to Mary here. He points her back to another biological miracle that she already knows has happened in order to give her faith to believe in the one that she will experience. I mean, biblical faith is never blind faith. I mean, it may call you to walk where you've not been, but it's always rooted in the promise of God that God that will be accomplished by, by the power of God. I mean, the struggle you and I have, have in faith is not what to believe. It's spelled out very plainly in the Bible. God makes his facts clear. It's who to believe. Will you trust God or your reason or your eyes or your own ability? Look at verse 37. It says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And here's another example where modern common statements can cause you to miss what God wants you to actually see here. For nothing will be impossible for God. Bumper stickers and t-shirts may be what you think here. Mary believed him. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, whatever this means, for nothing will be impossible with God, in verse 37, that was enough to shut Mary's questions down. So that's pretty significant. Look at verse 38. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's how you know she got it. I mean, God's messenger departed from her, message delivered, message received. If she had needed more encouragement or more questions, the angel would have stayed and given it to her. But she doesn't need any more. She departs because of this one statement. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Is that just, hey, believe God. God can do anything. No, it's, it's much deeper than that. Do you know this is actually a reference, an Old Testament reference to, to Abraham and Sarah? The Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, can I really bear a child whenever I am old? Remember when Sarah overhears, the angel says? And look at what 
He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? This is a paraphrase of Genesis 18, 14. There are two parts to the angel's answer. One is an echo of what God promised. Uh, turn back to Luke chapter 1, verse 7. Look at verse 7. Here's an echo of what God promised. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Elizabeth wasn't just the problem. It was both. that sound familiar? I mean, John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Uh, that literally means his coming was to prepare people for the Messiah. And that didn't start with his preaching. Don't think that, that, that John the Baptist started preparing the way when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. That started actually with his conception because it reminds the people of a promise that would be fulfilled in Jesus, a promise long ago, a promise to Abraham and Sarah. Just like Sarah and Abraham were old, a child past, child, uh, past childbearing age, Elizabeth was too. Sarah was, was, was past menopause. And so was Elizabeth. And just as God appeared to Abraham, an angel appeared to Zechariah. And as Abraham struggled to believe, so did Zechariah. But Mary knew that Isaac had been born because she was a descendant. And she knew if God could bring a biological miracle to Sarah, he could for her as well. And that phrase, Sarah's doubting, they brought that response from the Lord is where the angel took Mary. Her mind went there and said, I'm done. I believe. And just to help Mary a little more, he would give him a, a miracle that was, that was a little closer to home through her cousin. Verse 36 that we've already read, here's the example of God accomplishing it even today. And behold, even your relative. Just like Abraham and Sarah, even your relative. God's reminding Mary of a biological miracle in the past that she would be able to see her own relative who was passing childbearing. Think about this. Elizabeth is also pregnant. She's barren. Mary knew that. And they don't live with each other. So when she gets there, she's six months pregnant, and she's able to see. She's able to see. She was giros, old in age. And just to remove any confusion, it says she was known as a barren woman. God tells Mary how it will happen. He reminds her of his promise to Abraham and then shows her that as he can cause a woman to be barren, to be with child, he can do that for somebody who's past the ability, past menopause, he can do that for somebody who is before they're able. Because God has power over the womb. I mean, the birth of the Messiah was foretold from the beginning. Genesis 3, seed will come from the woman, not told how. Genesis 12, the promise of Abraham. Seed will come to barren Sarah, Moses. Then a nation will be raised up from that seed. Isaac, the Psalms, Isaiah 7, all the prophets foretold. Elizabeth hearkens us back to, to point us forward. Mary is, is visited by an archangel. It was confirmed to Joseph by an angel. It was confirmed to both of them by shepherds. It was confirmed by Anna. It was confirmed by Magi. One writer said, what, what more proof do we need? I mean, over and over and over. From creation to Abraham to Moses, the prophets, the Christmas story, to the power 
of God that you have seen in the lives of people that you know when they were this way, living this way, in bondage to sin in this way, and God delivers them, changes them, not by their own abilities. I mean, they put forth effort afterwards, but, but in, the, in, the, in the birth, it's work that the Lord does. The virgin birth was a supernatural miracle. It was a biological miracle. And lastly, it was a symbolic miracle. Turn forward to, while we're on John the Baptist to, to Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Remember John, his paving the way begins with, with this symbolic miracle of his birth. And he's going to talk about another symbolic miracle when John is actually doing his preaching. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Now look at verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, Abraham is able to raise up other children. God is able to raise up other children to Abraham. I'm saying to you, I'm preaching to you, repent, the kingdom is here, it's hand. I'm the forerunner. The Messiah has arrived. You need to repent so you can enter into the kingdom. And you need to bear forth fruits that show that your repentance is genuine But don't say to yourselves, you're getting in the kingdom because you're a physical child of Abraham. You need a spiritual birth. You need God to raise you up as a child for the kingdom. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Look at verse 16. Some some question this. And John says... As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is the one who's going to bring about that supernatural birth. What's he talking about? God raising up children that are, that are not of natural birth. He's talking about the exact same thing that Nicodemus doesn't understand. What do you mean? I must be born again. I've already been born. I mean, I can't crawl back in my mother's womb. And he says, I'm not talking about a spiritual or a physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And when the Jews said to John, we have Abraham as our father, they, they meant they were physical descendants of Abraham. They were God's people by physical birth. And John declares that's not what's, getting, what, what's going to get you into the spiritual kingdom. I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. That's how the kingdom is populated, spiritual births. I hope you still pray for my friend Boaz and others. I spoke to him just just yesterday. um, And I was reminded of this conversation that I had with him about what was the biggest obstacle. I asked him one time, what's the biggest obstacle for Jewish people to come to faith in Christ. And his answer was, was not to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He, because he says Jesus is very Jewish. The New Testament is very Jewish. 
He said it's understanding the Christian concept of sin, which is a biblical concept, by the way. It's all over the Old Testament. Romans 3 is a direct quote of Psalm. Of the Psalms. To the modern Jewish person at the time of Christ, modern person today and the Jew at the time of Christ, sin was something you did. It's not what you are. It's not what was in you. I mean, keeping the commandment of God, forsaking the commandment, you know, don't do this outwardly. It had nothing to do in their minds, even today, with being born with an incurable sin nature. That's why the, the topic of Jesus' preaching was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's why the entire Sermon on the Mount was, was to show that the law applies to the heart as well as the hands. And just like in Jesus' day, people aren't looking for a Savior because they don't think they need the new birth. And God's the only one who can give a new birth. And that's what John is saying. I, I say to you that from these stones, you're a stone, without God raising you up as a child of Abraham, you're dead. You're, you're as dense as a rock as they used to say whenever I was a kid. You don't get it. You can't get it unless the Holy Spirit of God overshadows you. The power of God comes to you through the gospel. Where, Where does that come from? Who does that? Who can give you that? Verse 16 provides the answer. John says, one is coming who is mightier than I. It's not me. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary. The same Holy Spirit that that gave um, the, the, the natural parts by a supernatural and biological miracle. That same Holy Spirit can do a miracle in you. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Meaning he'll grant you a new birth and that new birth will be pure. I mean, John was the forerunner to prepare God's people for Christ. And just as John's miraculous birth was a symbol to Mary, John's prophetic words here are a symbol to us. And just like Mary couldn't give birth to the Messiah on her own, we can't birth birth ourselves spiritually. Exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. I mean, John 3 is not a how-to. It's an oh my. I'm toast. I'm done. You must be born again. And you can't cause yourself to be born again. There's no other way. And so John the Baptist is saying, just as the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary to create in her something that was not in her, he can and must do the same thing for you, or you'll remain born physically but not spiritually. Or just as the Spirit must take some, or make, make something in Mary by special creation that was not there before, so must the Spirit of God do that work of creation in you. You must have a supernatural birth. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, when did he say this? Let light shine out of darkness. When did God say that? In Genesis, in creation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Spiritual creation, or John 3, or Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. He gave you spiritual life with Christ. How did that happen? Luke, I'm sorry, uh, Titus 3, verse 4. 
But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit of God, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus. Should I go on? I will. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word. What does the Holy Spirit use to do that work? You have been born again, not of yourselves, but by God, through the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, and He uses the living and enduring word of God. I preach a Christmas message that you've heard a thousand times that there are certain people that are, will watch this, and maybe you're here this morning going, oh, wow, I'm hungry, I've heard this a million times. There's somebody else sitting here coming in contact with the gospel for the first time, and the Spirit of God changes them. That's the power of the Lord. He's able to do it. He's able to do it, and He did it for me. That's just New Testament. Well, it's James. One more. Every good thing and perfect gift that comes down from every good thing you have comes from the Lord, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And what is the greatest example of God's good gifts? In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be kind of a first fruits among His creations. We would be His offspring. And it would be in the exercise of His own will that He does through the Word of God, through the Gospel. New Testament only? No. Ezekiel 36, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. I will put my, a, a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone. Stones raised up to be children of Abraham. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Deuteronomy 30, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, I don't even need to put it up there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. It's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You need a new birth if you haven't had one. God promised long ago in Genesis 3 that he would do something about the sin of man. He promised the seed of the woman would bring the answer. He faithfully prospered mankind and moved his promises along through times and seasons. He declared through Noah that from Noah's descendants, Abraham would come be the tents of Shem. Blessing would come to the whole world. He raised up a people from his promised son Isaac called Israel, the nation of Israel, who would be a light to the whole world, point men to the one true and living God. He gave him his law, prophetic promises about the ones to come until the day of God's appointed time when a virgin would be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit and start the unfolding of God's promise to redeem. In the time of his coming, was chosen by God and inaugurated to be the last days, or what Paul calls the days of salvation. Do you realize the special days that we live in? Amazing times. Technology, like, it's unparalleled in any time in, in, in human history. Difficult things that are, that are 
that are they're amazing. There are all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. You know why it's the most amazing time to live? Because you live in the day of salvation. You live in the latter days. You live after the cross. You live in the days when God has called us to proclaim the gospel to the whole world, when you could come in contact with this gospel and be changed. The days in which God flings wide the doors of mercy and invites all people to come in. When the gospel will be fully preached and the church will be empowered to carry the good news that will not fail, a time when God will extend his mercy by calling people to repent, like in Acts 17, 31, warning them of the day when all creation will be brought before its creator and the judgment of men and nations will ensue. This is the day we're living in. This is the message of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the very God who created He's the one who's the king of the Jews. He has both the bloodline and the throne rights. He's the son of Abraham, the son of David, and he came to us by the virgin birth. Many other religions present Jesus as important, but they fail to declare his deity, as the Bible does, as the Father does. The Koran says he's a prophet of God. Some sects of Judaism say that he's a great teacher sent from God. The Mormons say that he was the brother of Lucifer, formed by a physical union of God and Mary. Jehovah's Witness say he was perfect, a perfect man, but not God. But if you want to go to heaven, you must confess him as God and as Christ. Because this God who is just is the one who kissed his mercy to the cross. Didn't leave us, came to us. What a, what a truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We who are saved know that we are not smarter than anyone else. We know that you have shown us grace. Was, was, was Mary highly favored? Oh, yeah. She was favored to be able to, to bear the Messiah. Are we any less favored that you would bring us your grace open our eyes to salvation? Are we any less favored that we're going to be in your presence? Mary had an amazing gift. She carried God herself in her womb and and was able to spend 33 years with him on the earth. Are, Are we any less favored to be able to spend all eternity with you because of your salvation? I think not. I pray for anyone who's not experienced this birth, would you do that for them even this morning, Lord, as they hear the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.